Jesus and the, the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders have been confronting him again and again and again, and Jesus is increasingly being rejected by the people that he was sent on a mission to. And right on the heels of that interaction, right on the heels of Jesus being rejected by the people who we would think would accept him, the people who, who taught the law that he said he came to fulfill, Right on the heels of his rejection by them, we see this story in Matthew's gospel where Jesus interacts with someone who we would think would end up rejecting Jesus, but but she comes to Jesus in faith. And so what we're going to see in this this lady's cry for mercy, this lady's plea for mercy before Christ, we're going to see that knowing our position before God should cause in us humble confidence before him. That's the main point of today's passage. Knowing our position before God results in humble confidence before him. And we're going to see that fleshed out in in Jesus' interaction with this woman. And then we're going to think together about what that means for us and our position before God. Because our position is is different than hers. Let's start by looking at verse 21. Matthew tells us that Jesus went away from where he was. So he's, he's in Jewish Galilee. He's interacting with the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the other Jewish religious leaders, and he goes away from there, and he goes to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we've already heard these places mentioned in Matthew's gospel. Back in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this about these regions. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, and ashes. And so Jesus, back in Matthew 11, he uses these two places, Tyre and Sidon, he uses them as an example of unrepentant people. He's talking about the cities that he's ministered to, the city that he's, he's healed people in, he's cast out demons in, he's done other stuff in, and these people haven't repented. They haven't seen his mighty works and responded in faith. And so Jesus compares them to Tyre and Sidon because all throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Joel, and and Zechariah and some other prophets all condemn these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, because they were unrepentant and they continued to be unrepentant for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until Jesus in the Gospels uses them as an example that everyone would have known of what unrepentant people are like. And so now, in Matthew 15, Jesus goes to them. He goes to this region. He leaves the Jewish region of Galilee, and he goes over to where these Gentiles are. It's why Matthew, in verse 22, says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Now for us, in, you know, 2012 English, behold is kind of an old and boring word. It's not a word that really inspires a whole lot of excitement in us. But for Matthew, that's exactly what it does. What Matthew's trying to do by using that word is he's trying to to tell us that what is about to happen in the story should shock us. What's about to happen in this story, in this next sentence, is something that's going to be surprising. So it's almost more like what we would would say, like, check this out. You're not going to believe what's about to happen. A Canaanite woman. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. But the question that we have to ask is why should that be surprising to us? Why why is that something that that I'm not going to believe, that a Canaanite woman comes out? 
Well, if you've read the Old Testament, and if you're a Christian, you should read the Old Testament. If, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that the Canaanites are this, this group of people that throughout Israel's history were their enemies. They were the enemies of God, the enemies of the people of God in the Old Testament. And at one point, God tells Israel to, to destroy them all, to wipe them all out. So in, in some ways, it's surprising that this lady even still exists. Because if the Israelites would have done what they were supposed to do, she, she wouldn't. But she's there. She's this person who's, who's an enemy of God and his people. And she comes out and she talks to Jesus. And she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So first of all, it's surprising that this lady even comes out because she's an enemy of God and his people. But then what she says is even more shocking. She comes out. She's not there to denounce Jesus, to speak against Jesus, to, to reject him or oppose him like we've seen the Pharisees do. She's there to, to plea for mercy because her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And there's, there's a lot in this statement that she makes, but there's three specific things that we should notice this morning. The first is that she asks for mercy. She says, have mercy on me. Now, when we think about mercy, we often confuse two different words. In our heads, a lot of times, grace and mercy are almost kind of the same thing. But they're very different. Grace is, um, is a loving response when love is undeserved. So, if I say... God showed me grace. What I'm saying is that God loved me. He, he showed me favor. He, he did good things for me, even though I couldn't do anything to deserve that from him. That's what it means for, for me to say that God showed me grace. He loved me, even though I didn't deserve his love. And I don't deserve his love. Mercy, on the other hand, is a, a loving response that's prompted by, by misery and helplessness on the person that's going to get the love. So for me to say that, that God showed me mercy, what I'm saying is that God looked down from heaven and he saw that I am, am helpless and miserable and, and dead in my sin on my own and completely without hope, and he, he loved me. He saw that I'm helpless and he took pity on me. That's, that's mercy. Grace is undeserved love. Mercy is love based on the, the miserable state of the one that gets the love. So in our passage, she's asking for mercy. She recognizes that she's helpless. She recognizes that she's miserable. She knows, and Matthew doesn't tell us this, but I mean, I think any, any parent in the room would understand that this lady has probably already done everything she can do for her daughter. She's, she's probably tried to help her. She's probably exhausted her resources to, to help her daughter with this oppression by a demon. And she can't do anything. She's helpless. She's miserable. She comes to Jesus and she says, have mercy on me. Look at my situation. Look at how helpless it is and love me because of it. That's what she's asking for. The second thing we should see here is how she addresses Jesus. She calls him son of David. She calls him son of David. And as we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel, this, this title, son of David, is kind of 
it's, it's, it comes out of the Old Testament. In, in the Old Testament, there was this expectation that the Messiah, the one that God would send to redeem his people, would come and be a descendant of David. He would be a son of David. And so when Jesus is called that in the Gospels, they're saying, this guy is the Messiah. He's the one who's going to redeem God's people. He's the one who's going to be God's king on David's throne forever. Now this lady, because she's a Canaanite, because she's from this Gentile region, she probably doesn't understand all of that. She probably doesn't know exactly who Jesus is and exactly what he's sent to do. But what this title shows us is that she's at least heard something about it. She has heard enough to know that I need to go out to where this guy is because he's this person that some people have been talking about and I think he can do something to help me and my daughter in our situation. And so she knows at least something of who Jesus is. You'll notice she also calls him Lord, but I don't think that's, uh, you know, when we say Jesus is Lord, we mean something very specific by it. But the word was also used just like we use the word sir. And so she's just she's showing him respect. She's not expressing faith in him at that point. She's just showing him respect by calling him Lord. The next thing we should notice, she says, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She's severely oppressed. Now, obviously, I'm emphasizing the word severely. I think it's really interesting that this lady, when she's describing the state that her daughter is in to Jesus, she says that she's severely oppressed. Because I think what, what that word, that, that adverb there shows us is that there are different degrees of demonic oppression. This, this girl is severely oppressed. And I think that when, when we think about demonic activity, when we think about demonic oppression, we usually just imagine it in the same way that, that Hollywood imagines it, right? Someone with their, their head spinning around, kind of floating up in the air and, and speaking in dead languages, right? When we think of demonic oppression, that's the kind of stuff we think of, this, this severe, extreme demonic oppression. But I think what we see in the New Testament, and I think that this, this, this word here, severely, is an indication of that, that sometimes it's severe. Sometimes it might be moderate. Sometimes it might be slight. There are, are different degrees. Now, obviously, this is not a, a sermon on demons. The point is just that we need to recognize that how the New Testament portrays these things is that they are a real and active part of the world. And they, they happen, they affect things. Sometimes it might be severe, sometimes it might not be severe. Um, if you would like to think more about that or talk more about that, I would be happy to do so later. But she says, she comes to Jesus, she asks Jesus for mercy, she asks Jesus to, to pity her in her helpless state. She recognizes that he's someone who can help her, and she recognizes that her daughter's situation is dire. Let's look at how Jesus responds to her. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. This woman like pours out her heart to Jesus and gets silence. Nothing. I don't know if there are, are crickets in Israel, but... Like, that's what I imagine in the background. 
Like if, if ever there was a verse in the New Testament that, that argues against that, that the, the people that picture Jesus as this kind of just hippie, loving guy who's friends with everyone, it's this one. This lady comes and like bears her soul and he's silent. But she keeps going. She keeps going so much that his disciples get annoyed. She's crying out. I think the picture we get here is they're going through this region. This lady comes out. She talks to Jesus. Jesus just ignores her, keeps going, and she's following them around and crying out, asking for help. So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. So even the disciples want him to do something. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus was sent only to them. He's, he's only sent to Israel. We've seen that so far as we've gone through in the Gospel of Matthew. Even when Jesus sent out the disciples on mission, he sent them and told them, just go to Israel. Don't go anywhere else. So he's still on mission just to Israel. He's only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Of Israel, And she's not one of them, right? She's a Canaanite. She's a pagan. She doesn't know God. She's not one of God's people. She's one of God's enemies. Jesus wasn't sent to her. That's what he's saying. She keeps going. Verse 25, But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. She comes, she kneels down, she, she just continues her cry for mercy. Jesus answers her again in verse 26. He says, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's pretty easy to understand what Jesus is saying there, right? He's saying the children are Israel. It's not right for me to take what I'm supposed to give them, give to them and give to the dogs. And so... The, the logical conclusion is that this lady is one of the dogs. Now, some New Testament scholars make a really big deal out of the fact that there are two different words for dog. There's like the, the wild dog and there's the domestic dog. And Jesus uses the domestic dog here. And so they'll say he's, he's really, you know, he, he's, not, he's not really calling her a dog. But... I don't think that argument makes sense, and this is why. For, for all the married women in the room, if your husband this morning as you're getting ready for church says, Hun, you know, I, just, I feel like you should know you, you kind of look like a dog today. How many of you married women would be offended by that? Probably all of you, right? Now, what if he says instead, All right, hun, you're not looking very great today. You kind of look like a puppy. Any better? No. At the end of the day, you're still a dog, right? And I think that no matter how we try to sugarcoat this, I mean, Jesus is saying she's a dog. She is outside of God's people. She is one of the enemies of God's people. She's a pagan. She's a worshiper of false gods. She is on the outside looking in. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's not right for for him to take what he is supposed to give to the people of Israel and give it to her. Now, before we get on to what she says, it's important for us to, to recognize what's happening here. The Gospels are kind of this, this period in 
in, uh, in redemptive history. So in, in the history of God's salvation of his people, right? He, he works some ways in the Old Testament. He works different ways in the New Testament, specifically because Christ came. Christ is kind of the thing, the, the person that changes everything. And so in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, we get this period where it's kind of a both and. Things still work a little bit like how they worked in the Old Testament, but they also work a little bit differently because Jesus is here. And so there's this, this overlap of the ages. So if you think about like, like, say, an ice age, right? After the ice age stops and it starts melting, there's still ice everywhere. But the, the sun's out, things are getting warmer, things are changing. So there's this period where it's, it's still cold, it's still icy, but it's, it's not. The New Testament in the Gospels, it's exactly that. And, and if you think about it this way, say you give someone who has never read the Bible before a Bible that has every book in it except for the Gospels. So Old Testament, then it starts with Acts. They're going to read through the Old Testament and they're going to get Israel, 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 Israel. Beginning to end. Well, not beginning to end, but you know, Genesis 12 to the end. It's all about Israel. It's all about God's plan for Israel. And then, if you open up to Acts 1, it's, I'm going to send you out to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. That would be a surprise. The ends of the earth would be a surprise. The question that anyone would have if they read the Bible that way, they'd have two of them. The first one would be, who is this Jesus guy these guys keep talking about? The second question would be, why is the gospel going out to all these other people? What changed? And what changes is what we see in the gospels. When God's plan of salvation, God's plan to redeem his people starts to branch out from beyond Israel to infect and, and impact the nations. And so in Matthew, we get glimpses of this all throughout, right? In, in chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham, and that means that he's, he's the one who was promised who's going to be the blessing to all the nations. In Matthew 2, we see these, these wise men come from the east. These Gentiles come to worship the king of the Jews. In uh, Matthew 8, Jesus heals the centurion's servant. So he does something on behalf of a Gentile. In Matthew 10, Jesus tells the disciples that one day they're going to go out and they're going to bear witness before the Gentiles. And then here, in Matthew 15, we see this woman coming to him and him saying, I was sent only to the house of Israel, but... Look at how it ends. Verse 27. She says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. There are two big things we should see here. The first thing we should see is that this lady, in her response to Jesus, acknowledges that she's a dog. Metaphorically speaking, right? Spiritually speaking. She acknowledges and, and takes on his language. Yet, Lord, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What this shows us is that this lady, she, she understands her position before him. She understands that, that she doesn't have any claim on the God of Israel. She understands that she doesn't have any claim on the, the son of David who is going to come to redeem the people of Israel. She gets that she's on the outside. She says, but even they get the crumbs that fall from the table. 
Like this is, this is a final plea for mercy. She's saying, you're right. You were sent only to them. I don't, I don't have any right. I don't have any privilege. I don't have any claim. But I still need mercy. And what's interesting here is that in this last comment that she makes, she's asking for both mercy and grace now. Right? She's asking for him to love her because of the state she's in. But she's also asking for that grace because she knows that she doesn't deserve it. She knows that she's not someone who can claim it. And in verse 28, Jesus answers her, her cry. He says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Even though he was sent only to Israel, Jesus responds to the faith of this woman. Jesus responds to the fact that she's crying out for mercy and she's crying out for grace. She's, she's asking him to do something that she knows she doesn't deserve. I think that what we should see is that it's the same for us. This woman understands her position before him. And because of that, she knows that her only hope for her daughter, her only hope for herself is that he is going to show her grace and he is going to show her mercy. And we know in the gospel that our confidence in Christ, our confidence in living the Christian life, it comes from, from knowing our position before him, from knowing that, that we are, are sinners and we're hopeless and helpless without Christ. If he doesn't intervene, if he doesn't work on our behalf, there, there's nothing that we can do to get ourselves out. And so, for us, it's not, a, it's not a one-time thing. It's a daily coming to Christ like this woman does and asking for mercy and asking for grace. It's, it's having this, this humble acknowledgement of our position. We're not dogs like she is, but we are hopeless and helpless without him. And that's exactly the, the place that she's in. For us, knowing, knowing who Jesus is and knowing what he's done for us in the gospel should cause us to live our lives humbly and confidently as we, as we trust that he is going to keep giving us mercy and keep giving us grace because we know that we are going to continue to fall short. So today, as we, as we transition to take the Lord's Supper, what we should be reminded of is that we're, we're not that different from this woman. And in the, the focus of the story, it's, it's not on her. It's on, it's on Jesus and who he is and how he shows her mercy and grace. And so, as you consider the fact that the Lord's Supper represents that Jesus' his body was broken, his, his blood was poured out, that he really died, we remind ourselves of that every week because we know that it's so easy for us to forget that. And as you take the Lord's Supper this week, I would just encourage you to, to remind yourself that how, however long you've been a believer or whether you've ever been a believer, that we're all in the same position. We all need Christ to pour out his mercy and grace on us. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that because you are rich in mercy, because of your great love, you, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. God, we thank you that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved. And that we don't have any claim to to boasting or pride in that. Help us to remember that we still need your grace and we still need your mercy. God, help us to, to ask for that, recognizing our position before you, knowing that we are hopeless and helpless without you, trusting in your grace. God, we ask that, that your spirit would convict us of the ways we try to take credit for our growth in Christ of the ways we try to earn your favor through the things that we do, of the ways we try to make light of sin by excusing it with grace. God, help us to value the truth of the gospel and help us to know our position before you and and live out of the fact that we are seated with him in the heavenly places, even though we still walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.